still got this kind of day happening. Well, this time I want to um, honor those who are veterans, those who have served in our uh, armed forces. So if you have been involved in any of the branches of the armed service, if you'd stand at this time, I know we have a few. We have a couple that are already standing, so you guys come forward so they can see you. There you go. Yeah, let's give them a hand. Thank you very much. So you can go ahead and hand those. We have little gifts to give to those that are standing. So if you go ahead and... Um, so Pat and Greg were also. Uh, Greg, Navy, Pat, Marines. Vincent, Army. Uh, Ray, Navy. Nice. And who else stood? Uh, John, Army. Army. And Navy. Right? Wow, I knew where all the guys served. That's pretty good. All right, thank you. Well, I mean, it's not about me. It's about them. I'm just saying. All right. Well, thanks, you guys. I appreciate you so much, uh, the, the service that you gave to our country, the freedom. I know, you know, you hear a lot from the, uh, those that have been in the armed forces, and, you know, they'll say, well, our job is our duty, and that's true, but there is a, an aspect of that that we need to honor um, them for that, and their willingness to do that, and their families as well. I um, also want to thank Jeff Kayo and the tech team. Last week I was on a staycation, and uh, so Jeff hosted, and the tech team made sure Pastor Kevin was up here bigger than life, and so uh, hopefully that was good, and it's always good to have a little change, right, from what's normal and regular, and so it was good to, I'm glad we we're able to do that. So uh, October was Pastor Appreciation Month. And you guys were gracious a couple weeks ago to, to uh, give Kim and me a, a gift, uh, several gifts. But one of them they said I needed to wear this morning, and I have to tell you, it shrunk <laughs> when I washed it. So I don't, really don't want to take off the shirt that I have on top, but I'll just show you what I have here. The world's okayest pastor. So I appreciate that. Thank you for thinking that of me, all of you, that I am okayist. So... <laughs> I'm sure there's the best pastor out there somewhere, but not me. I'm the okayest, all right? So, anyways. Well, we're going to continue our series, an epic God saga through time. And I realize I've been saying history, and it's actually time, so I changed that. Uh, and connecting the dots between what happened in the Old Testament all the way to Jesus Christ. Again, people sometimes look at the Old Testament and they're confused about what it's about and um, and maybe the unrelated stories, but they all tie together. And we're taking big chunks, but we're looking at God's mission uh, as he initiates relationships with people, and then through that re initiated relationship to restore man's relationship with him, and through that relationship, bless others. If you get nothing else out of this series, get that, okay? Because that's the most important aspect of what we're doing here tying Old Testament to Jesus Christ, there'd be no reason for God to send Jesus Christ, no reason for God the Son to be here in the flesh on this earth, dying on a cross for our sin and rising again. There'd be no reason for that to happen if we could somehow or another earn our own salvation, do something for ourselves. And our sin is what separates us from God. And I'm not, for most of you, again, you probably have heard this numerous times, but um, it's sometimes good to be reminded that our sin separates us from God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. 
and he can't have sin in his presence, and because he's just, he has to judge sin. And again, we're thankful for that in our daily lives. But the cool thing about God is as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, and that sin penetrates all the way down to us today, it's in our genes, it's in our DNA, as soon as that happened, God gave them a promise saying that there's going to be coming one day someone, a seed of the woman, who will crush the head of Satan and defeat sin. In the Old Testament, that promise is given different ways, but it's the same promise over and over and over again to the people of the Old Testament. And that promise, as we've learned so far, and we'll continue to see in different ways, is a promise of Jesus Christ coming to earth, dying on the cross, and doing the only thing that can be done for our sin to be wiped away and forgiven by God. Well, this morning we're going to look at uh, King David. Kind of fitting, Veterans Day, right? He's the warrior king. And if you've done any reading on King David, you know that he was uh, very accomplished. Uh, he was good at guerrilla warfare and traditional warfare, at least back then. And, and we're going to see how he fits into God's epic saga. So turn, uh, if you would, to 2 Samuel 7. It's page 323 if you're using the Bible there on the chair. We're jumping ahead nearly 400 years from Joshua that Kevin talked about last week. And if you notice, you, you might have noticed a difference in kind of our angle that we're coming on this series. Uh, and that's one of the nice things about how we're doing things. Kevin, you know, we get an overall idea of what we're doing, and then the campuses can decide on how they're going to attack that topic. Okay, So um, that's why you might have noticed a difference between Kevin's message and mine. Same message, same story, same impact but just from a different angle. But we're going to be moving forward now 400 years. We're, this is after Joshua's death. This is after the time of the judges. Now, real quickly, the time of the judges, uh, one thing you can do is maybe in your notes, you can write down sin cycle. Not a motorcycle, but sin cycle. Anyway, so what would happen, in, if you read Judges, what you'd see is this. Israel was leaderless. There's no leaders. And so all the tribes were doing whatever they wanted to do, and it even says in there that um, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And very uh, quickly after Joshua and that generation dies, dies off, Israel begins to worship other gods and sacrifice to other gods and give themselves over to other gods. Now God has already said that if that were to happen, he as their loving father, as one who loves them and will discipline them, will use other nations to get their attention. So what would happen is, is one or two of the tribes would start then worshiping Baal, which is the, the god back then, and then God would bring the nations on top of them, and they, and they would um, oppress them and, and mess with them and defeat them and take their food and do all kinds of stuff until Israel or until the tribes or whoever was involved in Israel would say, God, we need your help. We need rescue then God would raise up a judge who would then take leadership and God would use that person to rescue Israel. And then Israel, for a time, would worship God again. And maybe in another area of Israel, another couple tribes would start going off track and another judge would be right. And so there's a sin cycle. Sin, discipline, repentance, rescue. And it just kept on happening. 
400 years of that happening in Israel. Again, one of the things that people talk about God saying he's a bloody God or he's a God of wrath or, you know, whatever. He's impatient. 400 years that they were doing this, that God was patient with them and their sin. God is a God of incredible patience. So we skip over, even we're going to skip over Saul, uh, King Saul, the first king of Israel, and look at David. When you think of David, this is a little, you know, interaction now. When you think of David, what do you think of? What's the first thing that pops in your mind? Goliath, okay, louder, because I'm half deaf. So Goliath, what else? Bathsheba. What else? King? Is that what you said? Okay, he became king. Man after God's own heart. So that was Solomon who wrote Song of Solomon. Oh, his son was Solomon. Sorry, he said Song of Solomon. Yeah, his son was Solomon. Okay. Say that ten times fast and you get Song of Solomon. <laughs> Sorry about that. Like I said, I'm deaf in one ear and can't hear out the other, so... Maybe I shouldn't do these. What else? Any other thing come to mind for, for David? Maybe Jonathan, his best friend, Saul's son, Jonathan, and that you know, relationship that they had. Interesting. So maybe it's good that we're talking about it this morning. Nobody mentioned the covenant that God made, the unconditional covenant that God made with David, what we call the Davidic covenant. So good, and we're going to talk about that this morning, because that's probably the greatest part of this story. We get caught up in all the other stuff that was happening, but probably, and this is my opinion, the greatest part of this story of what happened in David's life is this unconditional promise that God makes to David and to his descendant, he says. And again, that's kind of key. As we noticed when we talked about Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and the importance of that word being singular, we're going to see that here this morning as well as we look at David. So let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 17 real quick for you, and then we'll break this thing down. It says this, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent, within tent curtains. So, uh, the ark of God, the presence of God, it represented the presence of God, not that God was stuck in a box, but um, it's not like jack-in-a-box type of thing, but it represented the, the presence of God. And so wherever the ark went, Israel could know, okay, God is with us. And if you read in the Old Testament, it went before them as they traveled, and it was involved in their battles and, and all that because it was representing who God was. And so here's David sitting in this palace, this house of cedar, and God is still in the tabernacle. God is still in this tent. It was the tent that they used, that Moses used when they traveled around the wilderness. Hundreds of years before, they still had this kind of tent type of thing. And the Ark of God, which contained the Ten Commandments, uh, manna, and... Um, Aaron's staff, and so they still had that sitting in a tent. So Nathan said to the king, 
Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Then God's like, oh, wait a second, Nathan, you spoke too soon. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So in other words, God's saying, I've never asked anybody to build me a house. So why do you think I will be asking you to build me a house? This is kind of where he's, what he's getting at. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, let me just stop right there real quick. Um, not that this really matters, but it's kind of a neat little FYI, because we're going to read something later on in Hebrews that speaks to this. Um, some, some theologians would use this word dispensation. And what a dispensation is in, in the Bible is God works at different times, different ways in different times. So where God used to speak directly to the person who was in leadership, i.e. Moses, Noah, Moses, now he's shifted and he's speaking to those that are in leadership through a prophet. So he's no longer speaking directly to David. He's changed his method. Message always stays the same. His method changes, and now he's speaking to a prophet, and that prophet is to talk to David on his behalf. Okay? And vice versa. I mean, David prays and all. But, and, and then we see later on, when Jesus Christ comes, God himself is speaking, and today he speaks through his word as the Holy Spirit teaches us. So we call those dispensations um, just something interesting for you guys to put in your back of your mind when you get on Jeopardy and they ask that question. All right, verse 8, Now therefore, thus you should say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to rule over my people Israel. I have been with you, wherever you have gone, and have cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name. Sound familiar? Abrahamic covenant, right? I'll make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Again, kind of similar to the Abrahamic covenant, right? Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So now here's the Davidic covenant. This is the promise, the promises that God is making to David and to his descendants. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before, from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever, uh, before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So like I said, verses 8 through 17 contain 
what we call the Davidic covenant. God's unconditional promise or contract or covenant with David. This is something God's saying, David, this is what I'm going to do for you and your descendants. He's not saying, David, if you do this, 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 and this, I'm going to do this. He's saying, I'm going to do these things for you. That's why it's called unconditional. And this covenant is obviously just as important as the Abrahamic covenant, as God initiates his relationship with people in order to restore his relationship with mankind and bless others. So what I want to do is I want to work through this. And at first I want to do a little bit of an Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, and, um, and just do a little comparison type of thing. First is this. Remember that with any covenant or promise God makes, or most every covenant that God makes, or prophecy that he makes, there's always what we would call a, a near future, earthly, or um, partial fulfillment of that. So there's always that when he makes it. But oftentimes, connected to that is what we would call a far future, and in some cases, future to even us still, heavenly or spiritual, complete fulfillment. And so that becomes our job as we're reading through these things. What is the earthly fulfillment, and what is the heavenly fulfillment? Okay, so we're going to actually work through that this morning. His ultimate goal, of course, is to restore the relationship with mankind, and then to take us to heaven one day. As a, it's a gift for us to get to go to heaven. The relationship is what everyone wants and what we need, and heaven becomes that, uh, that gift. Like the Abrahamic covenant, the promises made to a descendant or a seed of David, just like with Abraham. Some believe that David is actually the descendant that God was talking about to Abraham. Because with David, they were not only a true nation, you know, they had people, they had wealth, um, they had a law, and they had a nation. Now they really had a nation, they had a king, and they had peace. Nation, you know, David had gotten to a point where, as we read here, that the nation was peaceful and without battles and conflict. And so some people would say, well, that's, that's where the earthly um, fulfillment of the prophecy happened, or the promise happened. Paul tells us in the New Testament that the descendant of Abraham, who was going to completely fulfill it, remember if we talked about this, was Jesus Christ. And so we have the same thing happening here with God's promise to David, his descendant, which is going to be Solomon, would accomplish some of the earthly things but as we see, Jesus Christ will be the one who fulfills the heavenly, completed um, fulfillment of that. All right? So let's look at the Davidic covenant. starts in verse 11, uh, actually at the end of verse 11. We're going to look at Solomon's earthly fulfillment and Jesus' heavenly fulfillment. Kind of an academic message this morning. Okay? Just kind of boom, 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 point, point, point. And then we'll kind of draw some conclusions, some takeaway for us this morning. Hopefully you guys have your notes there. You can jot down some points of interest as we go along. So the first promise is this. There's a promise to establish a kingdom. Verse 11, end of 11, into 12, he said, I'll raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. 
So this isn't somebody who has already happened. David had some sons already. But this is going to be a, a son of his that's going to come after him. And it wasn't something that Saul's sons could get into. Now Saul was the first king, and so there was some conflict going forward in the future from here, from, from them, that there's some conflict here with Saul's sons, David's sons. But this is going to be somebody who comes from David. Solomon was a son of David and Bathsheba. He became the third king. And his kingdom was marked by peace and power and worldwide influence. He had talked to God, and we'll, we'll talk about him next week, I believe. Um, but he, God said, what would you like? And what God says, well, what I would like, or Solomon said, what I would like is wisdom. So he didn't ask for a bunch of wealth. He didn't ask for a bunch of power. He just said, I want wisdom. I want to know how to rule well. And so God gave him wisdom. And he was so influential, he was so wise that the leaders of the world, including from Egypt, they came up to seek his influence, his understanding, his wisdom on matters. So we see that established. But Jesus' heavenly fulfillment, Matthew 1, as a man, Matthew 1 tells us that Jesus is in the line of David. He's in the kingly line. And so he has a right to the throne of Israel. So Jesus, and one day we know, as we talk about the end times and all that goes on, that Jesus one day will come back and he will reign on the earth, and he'll reign in Jerusalem, and he'll be reigning over the entire world, because why? The second point is, as God, he's a king of the universe. He's king of kings. His kingdom is eternal. He was reigning before he ever created the world. He reigns now over the world, no matter what you think of politics, and what's going on in politics, and he will reign into the future. And so he's going he's gonna to fulfill that uh, completely. The second one is a promise to build a temple. God says to Nathan that he's this, this descendant will build a house or a temple for my name. So Solomon, he did that. Now again, the temple it contains the Ark of the Covenant. And this is important to understand as we move forward. The Ark of the Covenant is, the, is represent, uh, representative of the presence of God. Okay, And so uh, there's a funny story, if you want to read it, I mean... It's true, it's an interesting historical thing that took place where the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, they stole it in battle, they took it back to their, and they placed it in front of their God because they're saying, our God defeated your God. So they put it in front of the Dagon, is the, guy, is the God's name. And when they woke up in the morning to go in to worship Dagon, Dagon was, Dag, that's kind of interesting, Dagon. Um, he, he fell down on his face, so he's a big stone thing, a statue. Had fallen on his face and his hands were broken off. And so they're like, okay, wait a second, this is kind of weird. And so they decided, the Philistines decided, let's get rid of the Ark of the Covenant, or Ark of, of God. Again, presence of God is represented by that. And so God was saying, no, your God that you made up is not bigger than I am. I can take out your stone anytime I want. So Israel had the ark of God in their presence. David had, them, had it in his presence, but again, in a tabernacle, in a, in a tent, not in a temple. So they were going to put this into the temple. And so according to 1 Kings 6.38, it took Solomon seven years to build a temple, and it took him 13 years to build his own place. So 
you know, maybe we should have spent more time on a temple. But whatever. Uh, seven years to build a temple. If you estimated the cost today in gold and silver, some have estimated it'd be about $150 billion for the temple. So the place was gorgeous. The problem is, in the years after that, um, 400 years later, Israel is disobeying God again. God then puts them into captivity with Nebuchadnezzar, and he destroys the temple, and with it the ark of God as well. So it didn't stay, it stayed in, you know, in play for about 400 years. But look at Jesus' heavenly fulfillment, which, by the way, is continuing to be fulfilled today. So again, ark of God, presence of God, placed in a temple. God is in the temple. People go there to worship him. And it's very much of a localized thing. God's there, we worship there. But Jesus does something. Again, the, the heavenly fulfillment, the spiritual fulfillment. And look what Paul says about where God's presence and worship occurs today because of Jesus. So prior to Jesus, temple. After Jesus, death on the cross, burial, resurrection. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says this. Do you not know that you, Christian, are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In other words, God's presence dwells in us. If any man destroys a temple of God, God will destroy him. The temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So today, God's presence and worship of God is in the person, in a Christian. Somebody who has given their life to Christ. Someone who has recognized that my sin has separated me from God, I'm going to God for forgiveness of my sins, and I believe that Jesus took my place, my eternal death and hell in my place. And I believe he did that for me, and I'm trusting that when God says, I believe in that, I'll have my sins forgiven, and I'll have a relationship with God. When that happens, God places his Holy Spirit in our lives. So what was the presence of God in the Old Testament? And if you read the Old Testament, it, it talks about how the, old, the, heaven, the um, Holy Spirit would come upon somebody and then go off of somebody, come upon somebody and go off of somebody. Today, after Jesus Christ, God's Holy Spirit resides in us as a guarantee and as a seal of our relationship with God and who will take us to heaven one day. So this, if you're a follower of Christ, your body now is a temple of God. Your body is where worship occurs. And he says this, Peter gets in the act here, and he says this in, verse, uh, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, talking about Christians or people who recognize who Jesus is, and they come to him for salvation. He says this, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men. Not a, not a piece of inanimate object stone that built the temple, but coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, that's a temple, for a holy priesthood. We're also priests. We talked about that. We talked about Moses to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God's presence is no longer confined to some box in some building. 
God's presence is in us, living, active, moving us around, empowering us to live life the way God wants us to live, giving us the ability that no matter where we're at, we can worship God. Our building is a wonderful building. But God's presence is only here, if you want to put it that way, when we're here. Right? It's just a building. It's brick and wood and drywall and paint. We get to be the representatives of God. We can worship wherever we're at. We are called to come to together as Christians. God's provided us a building to do that. But when we talk about the church, we're not talking about the building. We're talking about us together. We're God's temple. Worship happens in us. Third promise. The promise to establish an eternal kingdom. Eternal, meaning everlasting. Solomon can't fulfill that one. So this is one of those things where we're looking at it and we say, okay, what could Solomon fulfill and what couldn't he? Well, this one he couldn't fulfill. This is an eternal kingdom. Not just a kingdom on earth, but an eternal one. But Jesus says this, or actually the angel Gabriel says this to Mary when he says, by the way, you're, you're going to give birth to God's Son. Look what he says. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father who? David. Cool. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So Jesus is the only one who can fulfill that problem or that promise for us. And the last one is this promise of an eternal relationship. God tells Nathan that he's going to be a father to his descendant, and that descendant will be a son to him. So we're Again, when we're talking about God, as you guys are talking about God with your friends and who he is, he's not something that's way out there, okay? He's not something or some power that's out there. God is always shown to be a very personal God, one who wants to be intimately involved in our lives. Here he's using the illustration of a father and a son. And obviously with, with Solomon, he had that relationship with God. Just read the Proverbs. You know, read some of the Psalms. You know, God and Solomon had a very close relationship. God was personal. He was providing. He was protecting. He said that if, if Solomon were to discipline or need to be disciplined, if he was to commit iniquity, if he was a sin, that God would then use men to do that. In other words, nations to kind of get Solomon's mind back to God and his heart back to God. Years later, Solomon's descendants, after he died, then there was division in Israel. There was Judah, two tribes against Israel, ten tribes, and they fought against each other, and God brought Assyria and Babylon in to discipline them through captivity. And you can read all that as you go through the Old Testament. But to me, Jesus' fulfillment of God's promise here is, is the coolest part of this. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 5. And what Hebrews is doing, uh, the author of Hebrews is 
showing how superior Jesus Christ is. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua. So all, all, the, all the people and beings that Israel would look at and say, wow, they're great. They're awesome. They're you know, great people. The author of Hebrews says, now look how Jesus Christ is far better than all of them. And so that's what he's doing here in these verses. And why I talked about before about how God changes how he presents his message. Let me just read these for you. It says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, talking about Jesus' day and today even, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So Jesus was involved, obviously, Son of God, the Son, involved in creation of the world. And he is the radiance, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of God's nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, Jesus, dying on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It accomplished something in heaven. His death on this earth, his time dying in eternal death in hell for us, our eternal death for us, accomplished something in heaven. And so he sat down, the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. No angel could ever do that. As he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to it, now catch this. So, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? And look at this, 2 Samuel 7.14. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. What's the author of Hebrews saying? What he's saying is, when God said to David, I'm going to be a, a father to your descendant, and your descendant will be a son to me, he was referencing Solomon, but the heavenly fulfillment he was already talking about, God the Son coming into flesh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so he's, he's telling David back in 2 Samuel, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, that there's going to be one who comes from David that God is going to say, He is my son, I am his father, and it was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfilled this. But what about the correction that God promises for disobedience? Well, obviously Jesus was perfect, right? Yes, okay, amen, yeah. Because he's God, so he's perfect. So he lived a perfect life, which is important for us because we get his perfect, perfect life in God's eyes. But he did something for us. Romans 3, 23, 25 says, For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. So we're not perfect. We can't become perfect. Being justified, which is, means declared not guilty by God, as a gift, so not by works, but as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Christ redeemed us, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. $25 word, by the way, you can use that to impress your friends and family with. It means substitute. So God displayed publicly as a substitute in his blood through faith. That word, that idea that displayed publicly, what is that? He's talking about the cross. So where Solomon may not have been disciplined because he never you know, sinned, 
He may not have been disciplined by men, in other words. Jesus was disciplined by men. Why? Not because of his sin, but because of our sin. He took our sin on himself. And so he then was made, it made public to everybody that Jesus Christ was the one who took our sins. So when he was beaten, when he was spit on, when he had the crown of thorns placed on him, when he had a cat of nine tails ripped around his side, he was being abused, he was being hit by men. That was not because of what he did, because of what we did. And it was so that he could pay our judgment, our eternal, our eternal punishment in hell. And it's through faith in Jesus that we can have our sins forgiven and have our relationship with God restored like he has been working on since creation. So God finishes up at verse 16, kind of summarizing that, so we're not going to go into it, it's just basically summarizing what we've just talked about. So the question is, why would some promises uh, God made over 3,000 years ago matter to us today? And I just got three closing takeaways. First one is this. God always fulfills his promises, especially in restoring man's relationship to him. Whatever God's promise is, obviously this is a huge one, but if his promise is for peace, if his promise is for strength, if his promise is for wisdom, God is always faithful to his promises. That's why it's so important for us to be reading Scripture, knowing Scripture, to find out what his promises are and live based on those promises. He's always fulfilling his promises. Secondly, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is your substitute for God's promised judgment of sin. See, God's always faithful to his promises. And he says, if a person doesn't take the only salvation that's possible, then that person is rejecting me and they're going to live in their sin and they're going to be judged for their sin. That's a promise of God. That's, that's the sad story. That's the, the bad news, as some people would call it. But the good news is this. God doesn't leave us in our sin. God doesn't say you have to stay there for eternity. What he says is, there is only one way for your sins to be removed. Only God can remove the sin that we have. It's a spiritual thing. And our sin against God is eternal in weight. The only one powerful enough to do that is God. So God the Son comes to earth, puts on flesh, lives a perfect life, and dies our death. And Scripture tells us, and I'm not going to get into all the details, but Scripture tells us that when we come to God for forgiveness of our sins, and we say, I'm trusting that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He forgives us of our sins. He places his Holy Spirit into our lives. And Scripture says we are clothed with Christ. What does that mean? When God sees us, he sees Christ. Christ. He sees Christ's perfect life. Now, we know it on earth we're going to sin. Until we get to heaven, we're going to sin. But God's Holy Spirit is the one who will empower us and help us and get us through and give us all that we need to live life God's way. Which gives us point three. God the Holy Spirit makes us the temple of God. Your life is your place of worship. How you live your life demonstrates your worship of God. This is worship. 
you and us, you and me getting together, singing together, serving together, this is worship. But when we walk out these church doors and we go to lunch, that's worship. How we drive our cars is worship. What we talk about in the car is worship. Everything that we do is to be in worship of God because we are His temple. We are His representative. We are where the presence of God resides, as it were. And I don't know about you, but that puts a, a, a strong bit of accountability in my own life. What am I watching? What am I listening to? What am I doing? What am I saying? How am I acting? That's one part of it. But the other part of it is I get to represent God to others. I get to show them the love of Christ. I get to show them who God is. This incredible God who's personal, who's loving, who's caring, and who desires to provide. We talked about this in one other week. The fact that God always fulfills His promises, and if we get involved in what God is doing, and we live life the way He wants us, we won't ever fail, because God can't fail. So we get involved in His mission, seeing people come to Christ, we can't fail in what we do. Let's go ahead and stand. Close in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for uh, your word. And I thank you for the truth of it, for the fact that you inspired it. I thank you for the fact, Lord, that, um, that you work through us, even uh, when we can't even put our mic on properly. And, uh, stumble through notes and through a message. Lord, you are the one who empowers all that. You're the one who, you say that your word will not return to you without doing its work. And so, Father, that's my prayer this morning. If there's anybody here this morning who needs you as their Lord and Savior, that they would allow you to restore that relationship by them accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior and asking you for forgiveness of their sins and that just have that conversation with you. And Lord, if there's those here this morning who are Christians, but maybe life is a struggle and they're frustrated and you know, just not sensing um, that their life is going in the right direction, Lord, they would realize the awesomeness of the fact that they are a child of God, that they are a temple of God, and that they can return to you and be used by you. Lord, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Lord, this week as we go out from here, help us to represent you well. Use us to draw people to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for being here this morning. Have a great week, and the sun is out, so it shouldn't be too cold out there for you.